0: Hi, and welcome everyone to the I Have a Dream podcast, where host Rajan Navani initiates candid conversations with industry leaders and experts to explore their aspirations for India as we enter a golden period. Rajan is the National Chairman of CII's Council on Future Businesses, India at 75, and the Artificial Intelligence Task Force. And Chairman, Managing Director, and CEO of Jet Synthesis. Today's episode features Professor Rishikesha T. Krishnan, Director of IIM Bangalore, where he talks about India's RD sector and sustainable global growth in the coming years. To find out more, stay tuned
1: you know, move on uh, towards, you know, uh, India at 100 from where we are today, India at 75. I think uh, you and your institution will play such a large role in in shaping the minds of young people and our ability, therefore, to contribute, you know, to the world. So first and foremost, thank you for joining us here and, you know, agreeing to, to spare your time to share your vision and your thoughts, you know, for India. And one topic we really want to talk with you about is really how do we become a research and development nation, right? I mean, if you look at the statistics, you know, as a country, whether it's a private sector, or even as a, a country when it comes to, you know, global benchmarks, you know, we really lack in, in what we invest in R&D. Whether R&D investment, the way we've traditionally looked at it, is still the best way to move forward, given that there is so much disruption and technology is like really in a very differentiated state altogether, you know, where incremental innovation you know, may not be the answer to, to a lot of the uh, ways to solve the future problems of India and the world. So very uh, exciting subject. A lot of things we are going to cover uh, You know, and, and really look forward uh, to this conversation. In terms of context, you know, CII launched this very powerful initiative, uh, India at 75, back when uh, India was 60. Uh, it was launched with a, with a purpose to bring multiple stakeholders to come together to envision and dream of an India. Uh, and, you know, we must say that uh, when Prime Minister Modi, uh, who was also consulted back in 2008, came to power in 2014, you know, set the goals for the new India of 2022. And today we are here, we're celebrating Amruth Mahotsav. But this is just a stepping stone in the journey of a country which is, of course, beyond 75, thousands of years of history. And really, how do we use this Amrit Khan in the next 25 years, you know, to truly unlock our uh, position in the world and to really get ourselves back into a position of global leadership, something that we have you know, enjoyed in the past. But you know, as we look at that, I think there is only one thing that we are all very clear about is that, you know, India is, is a country with a large population, with people you know, who have very, very different levels of income inequalities. So inclusive development, I think, is a, is a no brainer. I mean, we cannot achieve anything as a country if we cannot, you know, take people along, so I know you have done a lot of work uh, in that space. So we'd love to start this session by by asking you really, how do you define, you know, inclusive development? What is inclusive India? How do we really look at a sustainable global future, you know, coming out of India, you know, particularly over the next few years? And we'll keep this a free-flowing conversation. Uh, feel free to to share your dreams as and when you get a chance, and uh, maybe we can kickstart with that question.
2: Yeah. First of all, thank you, Rajan, for inviting me to this uh, interaction. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I was also sort of peripherally involved with some of the thoughts on India at 75 with the CII Karnataka Council at that time. So I'm delighted to be back in touch with all of you. I think you sort of set the tone well for this discussion. Uh, I think if you look at India We are really a human resource rich country. And therefore, if you ask me what is my dream, my dream is that every Indian should be able to reach his or her potential. And the country should be able to not exactly create, but at least orchestrate enough opportunities for everyone to achieve their potential without economic or social barriers. I mean, if you ask me, that's really my dream because uh, our Biggest strength is human capital. And yet there are several things standing in the way of people realizing their full potential. So if we can change that situation, I think uh, that would be just wonderful. So that's really my dream about India. And uh, to me, that's what inclusivity is or inclusion is all about. Uh, Everyone should be able to pursue the vocation they are interested in, the vocation they like they should be able to use all their skills talents creativity whatever they have and uh, the environment should reward them for that
1: now i think i think you know your your dream will resonate with so many people you know who really believe that that is the way you know india can move forward and, and it is really this platform that we are trying to build where we are trying to strengthen and you know improvise on, on each person's dream and actually take the collective majority in a thought process. So as you would recollect, you know, when we were in, at India at 60, the need for, you know, a better line livelihood pretty much connected, you know, everyone in India at that time, right? And I think today we are in a position where, you know, we have a much higher level of self-confidence as a country, you know, we know we can make it happen, right? And I think all the things that you just shared is a dream that will convert <laughs> to reality. Of course, we need to keep our non-negotiables intact, you know, since you mentioned i remember professor ck pranab who was also part of those interactions you know in those days and and yourself you know uh, we talked of price performance being a way uh, where india will always drive better performance lower price you know uh, uh, social equity scale as a non negotiable right of that change but you know uh, one one thing that i wanted to really also you know kind of understand from you is that when we have to drive these changes right especially when it comes to Uh, you know, new business models, new products, more innovation, right? The R&D, you know, capabilities are are so critical, right? So, you know, how would you evaluate, right? The research landscape in India today, you know, given where we are, if you were to take your your view, given that you work with so many corporates and and so many students, you know, in different capacities.
2: So if you look at uh, India's trajectory as far as R&D is concerned, you just start with the big numbers first what is clearly a concern is that our expenditure or investment in r; d has really stagnated for quite some time now so typically most uh, estimates suggest that it's around 0.7 percent of GDP which is much lower than you know the developed world but even lower than other countries with whom we might like to compete if you take a country like China for example over time r;D as a percentage of GDP has gone up in the to the one5 to 2% range, whereas we are pretty much stuck at that 0.7% range. So that's, at the high level, that's certainly a concern. Now, let me just come down one level to what's happening a bit on the ground. Now, historically, most of our R&D happened in government-owned and government-operated research institutions. We had all these large research networks like ISRO, DRDO, CSIR, ICAR, et cetera. But a shift started happening somewhere in the early 90s when a lot of multinational companies started setting up their R&D centers in India. And Bangalore, the city in which I live, is a big hub for those R&D centers. So this created a second sort of locus of R&D where a lot of people, particularly very skilled people, started joining these companies and became part of the global R&D networks of these multinationals. One of the challenges of these multinational companies is, of course, that their R&D activities are largely aligned with the strategies of their parents, wherever they're located, and are largely focused on creating products and services for the global market, not necessarily for India and emerging markets. So a result of this has been that the people working in those companies tend to be somewhat removed or separated from what's happening in the local ecosystem because they're focused largely on what's happening in the uh, sphere of their current companies. So that's one part of the story. The second part of the story, of course, is Indian companies themselves doing R&D. And I think we saw a pretty good phase during the 2000 to 2010 kind of timeframe. We saw some really big ticket projects going on. We saw the Nano, for example, from Tata Motors, we saw Mahindra going into a whole lot of new vehicle development programs. We saw Indian pharmaceutical companies trying to create new drugs. Of course, not always successfully. So essentially, we saw big innovations at the national level as well, like Aadhaar, which came in around the end of that decade. So that was a quite a good decade as far as corporate innovation is concerned. And I was hoping at that time that that would be a platform from which Indian corporate R&D would take off during the subsequent period. However, I've been a little disappointed. I mean, the last 10 years, I would say, have not really been, you know, the R&D scene has not been as exciting as I hoped it would be. Uh, So what what we've seen instead, and I think this is where the hope for the future lies, is that we've seen startups becoming very prominent in the broader R&D ecosystem particularly in some sectors. If you take uh, sectors like biotechnology, you take healthcare, uh, you take, of course, the larger uh, digital space. We've seen startups becoming quite prominent in the broader r and innovation space. Though so even there, one might have some cribs that maybe in the really r and intensive parts like deep tech, perhaps we are not doing as well as we should. So just to kind of sum up, you know, there's the government R&D system, which still remains in a way the dominant one because the government is the largest spender on R&D. So out of that 0.7% of GDP, about 60% at least is spent by the government. And a lot of that goes into the government uh, sector itself. Then of course there's corporate R&D, which I believed it quite well in the 2000 to 2010 timeframe, but doesn't, hasn't done as well in the last decade or so. Then, of course, we've seen the startups coming in with some exciting stuff. And I hope that trend continues. But we've unfortunately seen a lot of our good talent go to multinationals, which, I mean, is good for the global economy, but is perhaps not uh, that great for the uh, Indian uh, R&D uh, scenario as a whole. Uh, just to round that off, I think the other development I see, which is somewhat promising, is that a lot of the academic institutions are becoming more research-oriented particularly as they get more serious about being ranked internationally. Uh, they are certainly devoting more attention to the research, both in terms of quality and quantity that they do. And that should hopefully have good results and outcomes uh, in the years ahead.
1: Well, you know, thanks for sharing that landscape and really, you know, putting it in very, very good context. And at you know, this 7% is compared to say one5 to 3% of what you know the top 10 largest economies in the world spend. so it's a you know 5x growth you know in terms of that and again given that you know 60% of that 0.7% is government i think the private sector and you know of course you would take out the multinational the indian private sector investment in this has to increase you know significantly but you know a lot of i think even the economic survey you know talked about you know innovation being you know the way in which you know a lot of Indian innovation happens, which in a way has worked to some extent, but, you know, obviously when we talk of, you know, the deep foundation building blocks of institutions, right, which will drive a large part of this R&D uh, is, 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 not, is not happening. So really, what, what can be some of the, you know, three of the things that you might think that can build a strong structure, a strong culture, you know, for R&D in the country? You talked of, you know, institutions such as yourself, right? It would be good to also understand what IMB, for example, is doing, you know, on research, you know, and to, to, to see how we can really strengthen this This one very demanding and very much needed. I know we, we keep talking about it and we've heard it, you know, we moved well on the Global Innovation Index. I think we are somewhere, at, you know, from 81, we moved to 48 or 45. But still, you know, for India's size, India's scale, we've got it much better.
2: I think there are multiple things we need to do. First, we need to uh, start young. This is a point that's been made many times before. Uh, Fortunately for us, the new education policy recognizes the importance of this. Essentially, we have to kindle interest in our uh, younger folks, particularly those who are in school and college to get uh, excited about uh, taking on uh, tough and challenging problems and uh, solving them. Uh, Some good first steps have been taken. For example, the Atal Innovation Mission, the setting up of Atal Tinkering Labs in schools, uh, those are all good first steps to kindle that interest in kids. but I think there's much more we need to do in terms of making uh, I mean it's not so much about research it's just about inquiry, curiosity, uh, you know trying to come up with better solutions. You've really got to make that a much more exciting activity for kids so that they get into that at a very uh, early age. One of the things which would help I, I believe is to expose youngsters to a lot of the problems and challenges that around us. Uh, They should really take on those challenges as, uh, you know, very aspirational projects and try to address them. And that would happen if people are pulled out of their regular habitat and exposed to some of the environments in which much bigger challenges exist. For example, urban kids used to need to go and spend more time maybe in rural India or they need to spend time outside their normal uh, place where they stay so that they'll understand and uh, basically get more sensitive to the kind of challenges people face uh, in the things that they are doing. So curiosity, exposure to challenges, these are a couple of things which would really help, in my view, kindle greater interest uh, among uh, the youth of this country. Some big uh, ticket Uh, Big visibility events and uh, missions would also help. We all know that uh, some of the missions like Chandrayaan and Mangalyan by ISRO, apart from whatever benefits they gave the country in the space program, also acted as great magnets for youngsters. They kindled a lot of interest in astronomy, in space exploration, in all the technologies that uh, go with uh, that kind of uh, endeavor. So, certainly, those missions are also very important to. Kindle interest and excitement among uh, the uh, younger generation uh, in our country. Uh, Finally, I think what's very important at a societal level, and this is something which we do struggle with from time to time, is we really need to support the scientific method. We need to support uh, data-driven, analysis-driven, decision-making, policy-making. We've got to get society as a whole to try and look at problems in a more rational and objective way and use data and experiments to try and solve the problems that are before us. Uh, This would probably require a lot of social change as well uh, if we are to embrace that. Of course, it's there in our fundamental duties in the Constitution, but creating that kind of a scientific temperament across the country is something that we need to address uh, very seriously.
1: I think some great points, you know, and when you talked of the historic and all that, you know, I myself work for NASA and I can tell you that, you know, at that point working on something which is being done for the first time in the world is such a uh, exciting, inspiring, you know, uh, way for people to really take on more risk, take on more challenges, you know, which is I think the foundation building block of any innovation, right? I mean, there is, the, you know, the, the risk that gets attached to the outcome, you know, when you're innovating. And I think young people being able to do that. You know, the good news is that uh, when I was at one of the convocations uh, recently, uh, one of the education institutions, uh, you know, Rishi, I asked them, how many of you would want to be job seekers and how many of you want to be job creators? And it was interesting that more than half of the hall actually put up their hands for being job creators. So I think the entrepreneurship spirit or energy that India is seeing today, I don't think we've seen it in the past. And, and I think that will mean more risk-taking, more innovation. But I still feel, and you rightly pointed out, you know, when it comes to deep tech, when it comes to cutting-edge research, right, at being at world-class levels, right? We do that when we go into other environments. I mean, we're doing that in, in the U.S. You know, we're doing it in other, right? What is preventing us from, from being a nation that can stand for you know, cutting-edge research here in India?
2: There are many reasons. One is that we perhaps miss some of the big R&D intensive tech waves. One of the big ones we missed was, of course, the semiconductor revolution. We are trying to get into that now, but it's, of course, two decades late. If you look at the top spending companies on R&D globally, you will find that most of them are in some way or the other related to semiconductors and electronics and domains like that. So since we don't have a significant presence in those industries, that robs us of a whole sector which would otherwise almost by force have to participate in um, intensive uh, R&D. So our biggest spenders on R&D in India, in contrast, are typically pharmaceuticals, automobiles, and to some extent, IT. But globally, it's Semicon and uh, electronics and those sectors which are really the biggest uh, spenders on R&D. The second issue is we need uh, to have uh, both vision and foresight and patience. Uh, you just look back at the space program today. If, after all, it goes back all the way to the 1960s. You look at our atomic energy program, it's again something that's been around for 50, 60 years. Results did not come in any of these sectors overnight. We had to invest in capability building in technology. We had to do lots of experiments and after you know going through several learning cycles we finally created the capabilities to be very strong in these areas so this is uh, going to be another important uh, prerequisite to do a good r&d uh, in the future we need people who have that vision like you know people like homi baba or vikram sarabhai or you know have all those big names and you also need uh, patience in, in terms of just your uh, your scientific work itself, you, uh, you must have read about the mRNA vaccines which were developed for COVID. Now, while it appears that the vaccines themselves were developed in very short timeframes, the fact is that the core work on mRNA-based vaccines has been going on for 20 to 25 years. And it's just lucky that that whole program had reached the stage of maturity where they were quickly able to... Come up with vaccines for COVID 19. But you want to never forget the 20 to 25 years of very intense work that's gone on in multiple laboratories around the world to make the mRNA vaccine technology possible. In some of these areas, uh, Rajan, there's really no shortcut. You have to invest, you have to be there for the long term, you have to develop human capability, and you have to keep at it. And you need uh, leadership, both political and organizational which can provide the long-term patient support for these activities to finally uh, flower and bloom. Uh, And in today's context, it also needs patient capital. We need uh, investors, we need philanthropists, we need foundations, uh, apart from the government, who are willing to make the long-term investments to do the kind of deep tech work, which will enable us to be a leader some years uh, down the line so in my mind these are just some of the things we need to do to uh, drive this uh, what's also required is in my view uh, and this is maybe a little controversial and i hope cii members don't mind but you know people have to get their hands dirty i mean in the sense that uh, when i look back at the companies that have really invested significantly in r&d in the long run in india it's because the promoters or the people who are calling the shots there really put their you know shoulder to the ground and decided to get involved in this. I mean, you you look at Anand Mahindra, for example. I'm sure, I mean, I I know he was not doing the R&D himself, but you can see the kind of support he gave to Pavan Goenka and everyone else in Mahindra to drive all the R&D and product development which has been going on in that company. Similarly, you look at Mr. Ratan Tata and the kind of support and guidance he gave to the Nano. The fact that the Nano was not a commercial success doesn't worry me at all. In fact, that's a completely different uh, issue. But the, you can just see the kind of commitment which the TADA group was able to make when it got the kind of support that Ratan TADA gave to the company. Similarly, when you look at pharma, almost all the pharma companies which have been intensively involved in R&D, whether you take Kiran Majundar in Biocon today, or whether you take Parvinder Singh who built Ranback C 20 years ago, you will find that these were leaders who were quite involved in the entire R&D process. They were not working in the lab but they understood what was going on. They were full partners with the R&D team in uh, pursuing the different R&D programs and they stood by everybody through both uh, thick and thin. So you, I think we need a new generation of leadership in our organizations who is willing to provide that kind of support. I think patient
1: capital, new generation of leadership, so many aspects. Right? You talk of vaccine, right? what India has achieved in terms of, you know, uh, uh, vaccines in this entire period it is is remarkable, right? I think, so we've, we've, you know, we've see pockets of excellence, we are seeing Yeah, so Rajan, sorry
2: exchange. to interrupt you, but yeah. But, you know, you, you just look at the Indian vaccine story. Once again, when you look at somebody, a company like Bharat Biotech, and you look at their ability to create a COVID-19 vaccine in a year or 18 months or whatever they did, it came not by accident, it came about because they've, over the last 15, 20 years worked ceaselessly on a whole range of vaccines. For example, there's the rotavirus vaccine which Bharat Biotech made in collaboration with the All India Institute of Medical Sciences, Dr. Ban and others. And this was an earlier vaccine which allowed them to develop the capabilities to make Covaxin a success today. Or even if you look at uh, our friend, Mr. Poonawala, after all, the Serum Institute has been making large volumes of vaccines for years. I mean, they were already the largest vaccine maker in the world even before COVID came along. So there's, there's really, I'm sorry to keep repeating, this, there's no shortcut to building capabilities over time and going, going step by step through that capability building process.
1: No, no, absolutely. You know, I said, others and Oona, we just had lunch together today. <laughs> but it's the same thing, right? The, the, the point is that India needs both of that, right? We need that R&D and then we need that manufacturing capability at scale because we have that at affordable price points, you know. And to me, all of that working together is what will drive India, you know, especially from our own self-sufficiency, but also, you know, as a global leader. And I think we are beginning to gain that respect. We are able to move, but I think the the need on the path to India at 100 is to accelerate that. Our discussion today is we probably will get there in any case, but what can we do today to to enhance the process to make it more efficient so that we can get there quicker, right? And I think the whole journey towards India at 100 is really going to, you know, come with with, with a lot of that, right? And, and and education, right? You talked of the new education policy, you know, building people in India, the human capacity, right? is, is so critical when it comes to the new world. You talked of missing, you know, some cycles, but AI, blockchain, sure. you know, what is the future workforce going to be like, right? We we're already dealing with remote working and, you know, so many challenges of the gig economy, how do you see all of that and what can you really do to prepare? Right? How do we go and you know, put, position ourselves there to be able to you know, take maximum advantage of this opportunity?
2: Well, I think one obvious thing to do is to select a few areas where we really want to excel. Uh, it's probably unlikely that we can be outstanding in everything, though as a large country, we should certainly take on a wide enough portfolio. But We do need to choose a few areas which are likely to be disproportionately significant in the future. Uh, We should also try to align our education system and whatever is happening uh, in the whole education process to some of these uh, priority areas, as well as integrate our funding with uh, all of this. Uh, We need to get everybody on board. So we need to find good collaboration mechanisms between academia, between research institutions. And of course, uh, with the corporate sector, we've seen some signs of how that can be done during COVID-19. For example, the government played a key role in being a catalyst in building consortia, which brought together different players in the whole biomedical space so that we could create vaccines, so that we could create uh, test kits and a whole lot of other things which were required for COVID-19. So perhaps we need some of those coordination mechanisms which will help uh, synergize or bring together the different capabilities which exist in silos across the country. We should also look at more uh, platforms which can help in coordination, particularly say open innovation platforms where companies could uh, state their problems and then maybe we could get more people like startups and others to try and solve those problems. We should uh, build further on what we have done in some areas like uh, fintech, where we already have things like the India Stack and other open API platforms, which allow a whole range of startups to uh, work on very interesting problems in the fintech space. So we need to basically mix and match the different capabilities we have in the government, in the large corporate sector, in startups. And collaboration and joint working is really the key. I, I, I believe that traditionally we have not been very strong at that kind of collaborative working but digital technology certainly allows us or facilitates that kind of uh, collaborative uh, work together. And we must find ways of using these digital technologies more effectively to bring all the different players together because we have capabilities, but they are all distributed in silos. And in order to create really good products and technologies, these different silos need to be brought together. And that's an important role which uh, the government Uh, to some degree, academia and, of course, technology can uh, really play.
1: Yeah, and, you know, with Digital India, you know, the sandbox approach, which RBI is doing for innovation, using the India stack, health stack, I think we have to be able to use that digital transformation, what we have already done a lot more. And, you know, some of the questions that are coming up, you know, because I'm also taking that being cognizant of time, you know, is that how does industry and academia really work together. We always talk about that, right? I mean, you know, uh, and what can we do, you know, particularly to boost innovation, in, uh, you know, while, while there are so many good examples, which are pockets of excellence, I don't think we have still cracked that, that magic formula, you know, to be able to scale that. So any, any thoughts, Rishi, around that?
2: We've seen a few good examples, which are worth considering uh, for scaling. One good innovation that has brought academia and industry together, is the IIT Madras Research Park. Uh, It's a pretty strong arena for both academia and industry to come together and work on a whole range of uh, relevant problems. Another thing we need to do is encourage greater mobility between academia and industry. One of the challenges that academia and industry don't really understand each other's strengths too well. They often talk a different language. So we need people who can be the interpreters or the interlocutors or basically connect the two and bring them together. During COVID, we saw that under uh, conditions of uh, dire need and emergency, those kind of collaborations did happen. We saw a whole range of people, for example, making ventilators and things even from academia. But how do we make those mechanisms work in a non-crisis situation? To me, that's uh, one of the questions I keep thinking about. How do we... Get all this kind of synergy to happen when there's no COVID 19 <laughs> around to sort of really put everybody under pressure?
1: I think coming together in a crisis, definitely, you know, things are best out. But, you know, uh, I think that disaster management, you know, is, is, is just one piece. And really, I think for that accelerated change, right? Sometimes we talk of that boardroom approach, you know, we gotta take one or two issues and just work deeply on it, right? We take, sex Swachh we take,
2: any the, other, the other thing is to be more flexible. I mean, yeah. for example, several years ago when China was trying to reform its R&D system, one of the experiments they tried was uh, to allow scientists in their public R&D institutions to basically give them much more flexibility in what they do and how they do. Uh, they allowed scientists in public R&D institutions to start their own companies. They could have one foot in their company and one foot in the lab. They could use the lab resources for whatever they were doing in the company with very few restrictions. Essentially, what the Chinese government realized is that getting all those ideas out of the lab was much more important than worrying about audit and bureaucratic hurdles and so on. So they just let the whole system sort of, in a way, take off. So maybe we need a few drastic things like that so that we can just unleash all that potential which is otherwise locked up in different organizational structures.
1: No, I think I think you know uh, there are so many good global examples, right? Also taking a theme, right? Like when quality movement in Japan is such a great example where you allow all that flexibility, but you drive it towards one theme that you want to stand for, which you know is critical or a foundation building block you know, for the future. So absolutely there, you know, a question, another question that has come up for you is on a different note, how can India become home to the Howards and MITs of the world? How can Indian institutes be enabled? Uh, to attract foreign students and really get you know become a part of the top 100 institutes in the world so what can we do to to position our higher education into that category
2: so indian higher education uh, given its constraints uh, i would argue is not doing too badly of course we wanted to do much better so you probably read in the press today that the qs world university rankings were announced yesterday And we have about three or four institutions in the top 200 Indian Institute of science, a couple of IITs, et cetera. Uh, I am increasingly of the view that, we should again unshackle many of these institutions. I think, first of all, they need more resources. Uh, If you look at the kind of investments we make, they are very small by global standards. Uh, I know the government has its own financial constraints, then we need to find alternate funding models. To bring in alternate funding models, you'll also have to remove maybe several of the other hurdles which these institutions have to deal with on a regular basis. So I think one should, we should be willing to experiment. I think we sometimes are a bit hesitant to experiment. Maybe we don't want to experiment with the whole system at one go. But let's take two or three institutions. The institution of eminence scheme, which the government came up with, was supposed to do that. But I think it's it's sort of, it's stopped a little short of that, it appears. I mean, it's brought in the funding, but it's not given the kind of overall flexibility which those institutions need to really take off. So I, I, once again, even there, I would believe that Indian institutions have it in them to be among the top. We've seen it in corporate India, right? I mean, before 1990, we hardly had any Indian companies which were in the top of anything. But now, you know, you take almost any industry, you will find There are at least a few Indian companies who are leaders in their domains globally. So the same thing can happen in higher education. But I think you really need to create a conducive environment for them to do that. You know,
1: I think corporate funding in cutting-edge research is happening well in developed countries and institutions and all of that. I mean, even in a country like India, somewhere I think we've got to identify how we can make that happen. I don't know whether it is going to come from, you know, because obviously performance of companies, like what you said, when you're looking at it from a, a long term will be enhanced, but you know the culture change, right? It's it's something that's required. So, you know, is there any concrete thing that you, you know, because being from the academic side, I think you can see or you have a view which is a very different one from people who are already in the in the corporate side, right? So anything you see specific. That needs to be highlighted to corporations, especially, you know, if we say that India is going to be, you know, the global hub for R&D and innovation in the next 25 years, you know, something that's missing, something that you can identify.
2: Yeah, so, you know, uh, I did some analysis some years ago of what was holding us back on innovation. And uh, we looked at it from the point of view of uh, three dimensions. We looked at it on the input side which was in terms of skills, talent, funding, et cetera. We looked at it on the outcome side. We looked at, does the market support innovation? Do companies that innovate get better valuation? Is there protection for intellectual property, et cetera? And the third thing we looked at is capabilities within organizations, which includes leadership, uh, decision-making, how the companies work, the culture, hierarchy, and things like that. And I'm, I'm sorry to say that when we looked at that, the outcome side seemed to be actually getting better in the sense that our, with a lot of the deregulation happening, the economic and other environments for business in India were becoming much better. But if you look at the second box, which is basically the environment within companies, the kind of leadership you, they provide, the kind of support they provide for ideation within the company, their willingness to put investment behind good ideas that come from employees, their willingness to take risks and try out new things. That seemed to be an area which continued to be a challenge. So my take on that is, just repeating something I said a little earlier in the conversation, we need a new generation of entrepreneurs who are not sort of worried, who are not held back, who are willing to take those risks, who are willing to work with the team, even if they don't have the deep tech capabilities, they have to work with people who have those skills and really try to make things, uh, you know, uh, make India and make their companies leaders in their respective domains from an R&D and tech perspective as well.
1: Yeah, I think, I think even filing of patents, right? We have much less, you know, in India compared to many other parts of the world. But I think what you rightly said, ultimately, it's the startups, you know, who are going to be able to become drivers of a large part of this, uh, which could come differently. And I think one of the questions was, also, that, you know, that however manufacturing, innovation, patents, et cetera, is, is, is you know, is, is nascent in India, but how do we really, uh, you know, get startups to enable that? Work? What can we see happening on that areas? You know, you talked of startups being housed within institutions, right? And and really, you know, that becoming a big base for, uh, you know, academic-led, you know, research applications. Okay, sure.
2: I, I think okay. we, we, need more sub, we need more support from the large companies to startups as well. I mean, unfortunately, sometimes I find startups, you know, who work closely with large companies, they're not getting the kind of support that they require. In fact, the large companies are off sometimes, I mean, this is not a general criticism, but sometimes uh, trying to exploit the startups rather than just helping them realize the potential of their ideas. So we have to overcome some of those uh, tendencies and temptations, and really work towards building a much stronger collaborative ecosystem as far as r and innovation is concerned.
1: I think that's a great point. And you know, at CII, we started a national corporate startup connect. You know, and you see a lot of you know, like what you saw Tata acquiring some startup, many other companies, you know, kind of working together actually a lot of the startups driving the future strategy of some of the larger corporates, you know, innovation within sometimes is hard, you know, to, to, to come about. And and I think, you know, if we are able to really build platforms like that, you know, across the country, definitely, you know, we'll see a lot more of that happening, you know, as we move towards India at hundred. And I think that's really the, you know, the, 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 theme, right. We, we are kind of running out of time, but, but I want to come back, you know, Rishi to, to that, that big, bold, you know, uh, idea, the vision, the dream, you know, uh, you know, what, lets, uh, what do you wake up to when you think of your next generation, you know, in India, you know, how do you see uh, the future of India? What's, you know, if I were to tell you, I dream for India in a particular way. I know we started the conversation with that and, and you talked about it, but, you know, as we've been through this conversation, where is your dream, you know, that, and, and how do you see that really becoming a reality?
2: Yeah, so I I think my dream is uh, still the same. It hasn't uh, changed over the last 40 minutes. Uh, I think it's really to create a conducive environment where every individual in India can realize uh, his or her talent, his or her potential, uh, and of course, uh, contribute to the growth of the uh, country and of course, the uh, prosperity of the individual and his or her family itself. Uh, I think this this will largely happen when we uh, unleash the potential which is available uh, already in the country. Which means that we have got to look at different elements which we have been, which I think have already been identified, but we need to take it to the logical conclusion. Uh, education is clearly one of them. Uh, the second one is the reform of the entire government R&D system. The third is just giving much more. Flexibility and much more resources to the academic institutions which have already performed extremely well, like the IITs and Indian Institute of Science and so on, uh, to support and really strengthen the links between academia and startups and industry through research parks and whatever other mechanisms that work, uh, to help the academic institutions also uh, develop on and translate their own research into. Technologies and products that can make a difference to the country and to society as a whole. So there, I think mean, a whole lot of things. I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, there's this. Uh, Manish Sabarwal has this nice term which I would like to just adapt a bit. So he he when he talks about jobs and labor and all that, he says that the main problem is what he calls regulatory cholesterol. So I think there's a you know similar kind of a cholesterol which is also holding back innovation and R&D and so on. So our job is to now you know, find a way of removing or sort of busting all that cholesterol. We need to find the right statins or whatever it is, which will just take apart that cholesterol and just unleash the potential of everyone in India.
0: Yeah, and if we don't find the statin,
1: then we're going to put the stent and, and do the bypass <laughs> and do something really disruptive to, to make sure that the cholesterol gets out of the way. But now I think very nicely put it. I think it was worth... Re-emphasizing this point that you know the dream of enabling every Indian to reach his or her you know optimal potential is is such a powerful thought. And how can we all as society, multiple stakeholders, work together to make that the goal, right? For for especially the young people who are going to inherit and shape the future of not only India but as we have discussed today, of the entire world. So again, Rishi, such a joy, and pleasure chatting with you, as I always say, you no know, one can go on, but uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's been a very enriching conversation and uh, thank you again for, for making this happen.
2: Thank you, Rajan, it was a pleasure talking to you.
0: This was Professor Rishikesha T. Krishnan, Director of IIM Bangalore, in a freewheeling conversation with host Rajan Navani, where he shared his vision for India at 100. Thank you all for tuning into the I Have a Dream podcast. Stay tuned for more conversations where we explore what India has overcome and what India can do to become a strong leader as we enter a golden period.